On February 8th, 1915, D.W. Griffith's fabulous movie, Birth of a Nation, premiered. It was the highest grossing film in American history from 1915 all the way to 1939, when it was finally dethroned by the classic Gone with the Wind. Like Gone with the Wind, Birth of a Nation was a Civil War period piece, focused on the reunification of America by showing the paralleled stories of the Northern Stonemason family and their genteel counterparts, the Collinses of South Carolina. The story of these two great families wins through both the Civil War and the post-war period until finally, after decades of disunity, the two are able to come together after the disunion of the war and symbolically heal America through the marriage of their children. And racism. A lot of racism. Like, a serious amount of racism. I don't know if a more racist movie has ever been produced in human history. Griffin's Birth of a Nation isn't just a film about the end of Reconstruction, uh, that period at the end of the Civil War. It's a movie about the glorious and wonderful and noble birth of the Ku Klux Klan. A groundbreaking, record-breaking, uh, massively popular, still influential film about how awesome the KKK is and how it saved the precious white woman of the South from the vile depredations of freed black men. Oh, the glorious KKK who took America back from those pro-black Republicans and returned it to the good and decent people of the South through that time-honored tradition of voter intimidation. The climactic scene of this film is a bunch of KKK members on their horses scaring African Americans away from voting. Somehow, the movie makes that into a noble idea. It is a masterpiece of propaganda. The Jim Crow era South loved this movie. It's a movie that presented freed former slaves as primitive, corrupt, and sexually perverse, making them the cruel masters over a tyrannical system that was crushing Southern values and the pastoral lifestyle that they once enjoyed. It presents the KKK as a group of dedicated, noble young men fighting a corrupt judicial system that refuses to punish rapists. It portrays Lincoln as a man who loved the South and wanted reconciliation. It presented radical Republicans in Congress as either corrupt fools or just people who haven't realized that the ties of race are far more important than political ends. There's an interstitial screen in this movie that simply says that the North and the South will once again be reunited in their Aryan heritage. The film was rightly panned by the mainstream press. It was protested against by groups up and down the country, including the NAACP. The New York Times attacked it. The Washington Post attacked it. Every serious group in this country attacked this movie as what it was, a repulsive rewriting of history that was attempting to somehow portray the South as the decent victors and racist Jim Crow policies as a moral good. Fearing the approbation of the serious press, the creators of this film decided they needed to give this movie the aura of respectability. They needed someone to lend their voice in support of the film that would suddenly make the film okay for people to go to watch. 
So they gave a copy to an old friend of theirs. Griffin and the writer of the film were friends with the former governor of New Jersey, a Princeton professor, who actually provided quotes for the interstitial slides during this film. Uh, Birth of a Nation was a silent film, meaning that any lines, any information had to be presented through these interstitials. One, given by this gentleman, said, quote, The white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation. Until at last there sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South, to protect the southern country. That man was Woodrow Wilson, and he would later hold a screening of Birth of a Nation at the White House. The first movie ever screened at the White House was Birth of a Nation. It is in 1915, following the release of this movie, and President Wilson's public support of it, that the KKK comes back into existence. And over the next 20 years, the majority of Confederate monuments and monuments to the lost cause of the South, including statues of Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis and Stonewall Jackson, will be put up all across the United States of America. These monuments were not built after the Civil War. They were built after the release of Birth of a Nation. The KKK is refounded, the memorials go up, and Wilson will later forcefully segregate the federal bureaucracy, and the city of Washington, which had never been segregated before. Amazing what a little presidential support for racism will do. This is the fucking show. Welcome to Republican in Exile. A half-hour exercise in self-torture where I, your incredibly, incredibly, incredibly white host, attempts to review another week of utter nonsensical trash that comes out of Washington with greater speed and volume than inaccurate history textbooks come out of Texas. I'm Matthew Hedge, and this week we're going to be going over a series of horrors and other unfortunate and terrible events that have left me oh so frustrated and caused me to drink heavily. Speaking of which, New Amsterdam Gin, yay! Oh, got a little on my shirt there. Uh, I wanted to drink something that wasn't from the South, so I made something that was, well, produced right here in the great state of New York. The song you're listening to right now is Tara's Theme from Gone with the Wind, a movie that is, well, only marginally less racist than Birth of a Nation. I say marginally. The racism in Gone with the Wind is relatively subtle, even though we all know what meeting everyone was attending there in the middle, right? Huh? White hoods? Yeah, we get it. On a somewhat uh, horrifying note, between Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, the most popular movie in America for 50 years was really, really racist, which I know as a white guy I find surprising, but I shouldn't. I really shouldn't. Anyway, if this is your first time listening, once upon a time I was a loyal Republican, and then Donald Trump got elected President of the United States, and, well, I... Caught the first train out of town. Ran. Ran as far as I could. My tiny little legs could carry me. Every week on this show, I go over a list of this week's horrors. We then uh, take on this week's outrage, thing that made me the angriest. I try and give you a little bit of good news, and then we finish off with a way to look smart this week. Uh, This music really is far too charming for the topics we're going to talk about. (laughs) I'm going to make it stop early, because I need it to. Let's launch right into this week's horrors. Donald Trump has been on vacation at a golf club in New Jersey. Now, 
two weeks ago, I said, well, Donald Trump can't get in that much trouble when he's on vacation, when he's not in Washington, D.C. Well, we're all a little bit better off. I was wrong. I'm sorry about that. Donald Trump spent the time he was on vacation attacking everyone and anyone that could move, threatening to launch invasions, mucking things up with North Korea and Venezuela, generally making a huge human butt out of himself. Now, the president has claimed that this was a working vacation, that he wasn't actually on vacation, that he was doing the people's work. Now, I don't buy this at all, for one very obvious reason. On the second day of his vacation, Donald Trump started tweeting out attacks against one Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut for lying about his record in Vietnam. And before we get into this in too much detail, Richard Blumenthal did mislead the public about his record in Vietnam. During a debate, when he ran for the Senate in 2010, during multiple public appearances, he talked about his service in Vietnam, in the Marine Corps. While Senator Blumenthal did serve in the Marine Reserves during Vietnam for a short period of that war, he also received four military deferments and never actually saw the country of Vietnam, something Donald Trump took great pains to express in his Twitter account, multiple attacks directly on Richard Blumenthal for these lies about his Vietnam record. He won election to the Senate anyway, in an event I was very, very angry about at the time. I mean, he lied to the public and the Democrats didn't seem to care. Uh, if I had only known the future. Hmm. In any case, Trump's attacks on Blumenthal were very confusing for many people. Why did this one senator suddenly irritate Donald Trump so much? Well, it's because he was interviewed on CNN, mere moments before Donald Trump started tweeting. Donald Trump was not working on vacation. Donald Trump was sitting inside on a rainy day, watching TV, and getting very, very angry. Now, this activity is not unheard of, if it's your grandmother or cousin or even me. But the President of the United States was also embroiled in a tiny international incident involving the North Koreans at this time. The day after this Blumenthal mess, Donald Trump retweeted a tweet from Fox and Friends about U.S. spy satellites detecting North Korea moving anti-ship cruise missiles to patrol boats. Uh, that is a highly classified bit of information that leaked to the press, and then the president retweeted the leak. Nikki Haley, our U.N. ambassador, refused to comment on those stories. Our intelligence infrastructure refused to comment on their stories. And the president retweeted a tweet about the leak the government did not want to get out. Now, I assume that the reason the president retweeted this was because he didn't know about it, that the intelligence infrastructure and the military command had actually been keeping that information from him for fear that he would blurt it out in public. Sometimes even the best laid plans of mice and men fall apart. Diplomacy with North Korea is becoming harder and harder and harder to actually manage, largely because the president keeps saying things, well, essentially the way Kim Jong-un would say them, promising fire and fury on the North Koreans, essentially promising to nuke them back into the Stone Age. Now, on one hand, this is absolutely what Donald Trump needs to threaten. In order for mutually assured destruction to actually work, both sides have to believe that the other side is willing to completely destroy the other with their atomic weapons. However, no president of the United States of America has ever said it in such visceral language. This is very popular with elements of the Trump base, but it's not actually terribly popular with, I don't know, the public of America and the world community. It's concerning when the leader of a country that possesses the world's second largest nuclear arsenal starts talking about his desire to rain fire and, 
fury down on his enemies. But that's okay, because it's what God wants him to do. At least that's according to the man who spoke at Trump's inauguration in the role as a mega-pastor of a Dallas church, it seems, that Dr. Robert Jeffress has told Donald Trump that God has endowed rulers, quote, full power to use whatever means necessary, including war, to stop evil, unquote, authorizing the president to, in the name of our sweet Lord above, destroy the North Korean state. This is, you know, mildly creepy, uh, but it is keeping in line with a new thought in evangelical religious philosophy. Uh, See, back in the day, the evangelical movement, the religious movement around the world was very anti-nuclear. Even Billy Graham, evangelical pastor who had the years of, well, most presidents between Harry Truman and the modern era, was strongly against nuclear proliferation, even did a college-speaking tour against it. But Dr. Jeffress is in a new field of evangelical thinkers that believe that Romans 13, 4, which states that God gives rulers the authority to execute God's wrath on wrongdoers. Now, this is a new interpretation of this phrase, but hey, if Dr. Jeffress wants to go with that, that's fun. Maybe you should take a vacation to Guam. Speaking of Guam... The North Koreans threatened for a short period of time to launch missiles near Guam. Not at Guam, but near Guam. Donald Trump called up the governor of Guam, a U.S. protectorate, and told him that, well, he should be excited. All of this coverage for Guam in the news is going to give them real press and a new tourism industry. Because I know when I go on vacation, I really want to go to places that are more likely to be nuked than others. I want to get right up to the DMZ. I want to go to the Kashmir region between India and Pakistan. I just want to go to places where I might die in terrible nuclear fire. That's that's my goal, and I presume it's the goal of others as well. While still on vacation, the president decided that, heck, war with North Korea was just too small a goal for him. He was also going to threaten to wage war on Venezuela. That's right, the collapsing, horrifying socialist military dictatorship in Venezuela has just been handed an enormous propaganda victory by the Trump administration when President Trump decided that he would say that the military option was on the table for dealing with Venezuela. Why? Uh, nobody's entirely sure. He was standing next to Nikki Haley when he said this, and the look on her face can be expressed by the noise I'm about to make. (sighs) I think that's a direct quotation. I think that's as close as I can get it. You see, the Madera regime was crumbling. Massive resistance to their policies, protests in the streets, violence. But now they have the rally round the flag effect. You see, when war is threatened by a foreign power, people tend to come together behind their leaders no matter who that leader is. And that leader happens to be a horrifying dictator with a complete control of the press. Madero has gone, in the eyes of many particularly in Latin America, from being a horrifying monster to being a victim of American imperial aggression. That is not good for the stability of South America. That is not good for the people of Venezuela, and it's certainly not good for our foreign policy. And just like that, it's time for us to take a break to get a word from our sponsors. Please, stay tuned. Mm. Thank you, sponsors. That leads us to this week's outrage. On Friday, August 11th, A group of protesters aligned with the Unite the Right rally descended on the college town of Charlottesville in Virginia and proceeded to, well, terrify the rest of the country. Carrying Home Depot tiki torches, these individuals marched to Lee Park and screamed things like blood and soil and white lives matter and the Jews will not replace us and other 
obnoxious, vaguely terrifying Nazi slogans. Individuals in this march were... This march was organized by Jason Kessler of an organization called The Proud Boys, which, despite the way the name sounds, is not a group for young gay men living in Chelsea in New York City. Rather, it is an ultra-nationalist neo-Nazi organization which promotes, well, a racist ethnostate for white people in America. It also takes its name from a musical number from the Broadway version of Disney's Aladdin, so maybe I wasn't that far off with my first impression of the name anyway. Moving on. The day after this terrifying show of Nazi and neo-Confederate power, white nationalism, there was a counter-rally, an anti-racist rally attended by individuals from two or three dozen groups. As they marched through the streets, a 20-year-old by the name of James Alex Fields Jr., who came to Charlottesville to protest with the Unite the Right rally, drove his car through the crowd, killing one person and injuring 19 others. This is mortifying. Not only is this car terrorism technique becoming far more popular in the United States, but it is, well, finally being utilized by white supremacists. The last thing we need in this country is yet another major domestic insurgency of terrorism. That's, let's, let's avoid that for the moment. Given how mortifying this event was, forces around Washington condemned the attacks. Republicans, Democrats, independents, outside speakers, all condemning white supremacy and hatred that these groups of neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates were reprehensible and should not have a place in our modern society. And then the president said, you know, there's violence on both sides, and gosh, while we condemn bigotry, we've really got to look at both sides. Both sides. Both sides. You know, on D-Day, there were two sides. There was a lot of killing on both sides. Both sides. You know, when the police breaks up an armed robbery, there's a lot of violence on both sides. Both sides. You know, when a fully grown adult gets into a fight with a child, there's violence on both sides. Just because someone fights back doesn't mean that everyone is to blame. That kind of victim-blaming ideology is lunacy, and is only used when you're trying to excuse the actions of people that either you like or you need. And this is where we get to the actual outrage. Donald Trump's response to this was mortifying. It wasn't quite the same level of strength as Woodrow Wilson's support for Birth of a Nation back in the day. But it was a very clear sign to white supremacists that he was not in opposition to them. I'm going to give you a direct quotation from a website called The Daily Stormer, which Google later took offline for its views. At 3.46 p.m., the day of this attack, after Donald Trump commented on this publicly from his golf course, they said, Trump's comments were good. He didn't attack us. He just said the nation should come together. Nothing specific against us. He said that we need to study why people are so angry. He implied there was hate on both sides. So he implied the Antifa, that is anti-fascist groups, are haters. There was virtually no counter-signaling of us at all. He said he loves us all. He also refused to answer a question about white nationalists supporting him. No condemnation at all. When asked to condemn, he just walked out of the room. Really, really good. God bless him. Everything I read, except for the explanation of what Antifa means, was a quotation from a Nazi white supremacist website about the President of the United States and how much they love him and how much they assume he loves them. 
And they have a point. When Donald Trump is angry at someone, he has no qualms about calling them out specifically by name. Richard Blumenthal, earlier in the week, one member of the United States Senator pisses him off by going on TV. He decides, uh, I'm going to attack him personally for about an hour on Twitter, and then pick it up later in the day. When a judge irritates him, he goes after that judge and the judge's family. When a union leader irritated him during the transition process, he mentioned that union leader from Indiana, a small local union, by name and attacked him. But when it came to a bunch of white nationalists marching on a town and then driving a car through a crowd of people, he doesn't specifically call out the white nationalists for three days. And then, after he calls out the white nationalists, and he finally did, he gave a a little conference where he specifically condemned white nationalism. He then got on Twitter a few hours later and complained that the press didn't take his explanation seriously and then gave a press conference where he went back to his original explanation that there was violence on both sides, that you needed to really look at those liberal, anti-cop protesters that were there. Good God. As I mentioned in the little mini-episode last week, the only explanation for this is if Donald Trump has been convinced by his political advisors that he needs these ultra-nationalist white supremacist groups in order to win re-election in 2020, that they are a major part of his core supporters. Steve Bannon, in an interview with New York Magazine shortly after the election, was asked why Donald Trump didn't forcefully reject white nationalism during that campaign. If you'll recall, it took him also three days to denounce David Duke and the KKK endorsing him in the Republican presidential primary. And Steve Bannon said, well, listen, they polled because Bannon was not a part of the campaign at the time, they pulled the race stuff, and it turned out Trump's voters didn't care about it. So there was no need to condemn. I should also bring up, just very briefly, that Donald Trump's father was arrested in a massive sweep following a KKK rally in Queens in 1926 as part of that second wave of KKK activity following the release of Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith. Donald Trump's father was swept up in that now, He was never charged with anything, and Donald Trump's excuse was that he was just caught up in this enormous sweep. He wasn't involved in the rally. But Donald Trump has some real troubling ties to this sort of movement. I think at this point, you've only got this option, that Donald Trump thinks he needs these voters to win, that he's either too afraid to call them out by name, or he actually secretly agrees with them. Neither of those is a good quality for the President of the United States to have. This has resulted in absolute enormous backlash for the president. Two of his job councils have completely collapsed as CEOs of major corporations no longer want to be associated with him. After Trump said there were good people on both sides of this rally, that there were some very fine people marching with those alt-right neo-Nazi protesters, his arts council disbanded, planting a secret message in their resignation letter telling the American people to resist. If you take the first letter of every paragraph, it spells out the word resist in their resignation letter. The country is standing on a precipice. The Trump administration has never been weaker, and Trump has decided to offer up a sacrificial lamb to appease the public in this regard. You see, the group of advisors Donald Trump has that was most supportive of these organizations, most supportive of these statements Donald Trump made, were the Bannonites. Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, and, of course, Sebastian Gorka. The leader of that faction in the White House no longer has a job. Steve Bannon is out. He's done. It was a very exciting moment for me. Not super exciting, because, you know, the president is still there. But 
The elimination of Steve Bannon from the White House is a major step in the right direction. Steve Bannon called the website he ran, Breitbart, the platform for the alt-right, the organization which brought together these white nationalists and these far fringe groups for this rally. Steve Bannon is a pretty odious, terrible human being who also owns a big chunk of Seinfeld, the TV show. I don't, I don't know how that happened. Well, I know how that happened. It was a credit swap deal with Goldman Sachs, but it's still weird. It's very weird. He also helped run the Biodome Project. Did you know that? The guy is odd, but he is also, you know, a loon. His support for the alt-right in Trump's platform and his public statements is hopefully going to be reduced now, although Miller and Gorka are still kicking along. If you're keeping track with our who's actually running the White House uh, game that we're playing, the White House Survivor, the White House Apprentice Edition, you'll notice that that it's just the Axis of Adults and the New Yorkers left. We'll see how that alliance holds up going forward because they still have to deal with what the president actually wants to do. And, of course, there are still two powerful Bannonites left, Gorka and Miller. Mm. Still, the president of the United States has not clearly condemned anything. He still insists on saying there were good people in that rally marching to support Confederate monuments. And I would like to bring your mind back to the beginning of this show. Those Confederate monuments were not built after the Civil War. They were built in the 1920s in support of Jim Crow and D.W. Griffith's incredibly racist movie that was supported by the then-President of the United States of America. The President's words have power, and he is using them for bad ends. Final thing I want to talk about here is about Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer is perhaps the most popular public face of the neo-Nazi, white supremacist, white nationalist movement in the United States of America. He's a leader on the alt-right. It has emerged in the last couple of days that Richard Spencer, in 2012, was a paid commentator for Russia Today, the Russian government's English-language propaganda outlet. Yeah, this is, this is all going to end super well. Well, let's get into some good news. The New York Times last week posted a front-page article about the race for 2020 on the Republican side. That's right, it seems that a lot of Republican campaigns, Ted Cruz, John Kasich, even Vice President Mike Pence, were already starting to put out feelers about running for president in 2020, presuming that either A, Donald Trump does not run for re-election, or B, he's not actually president by the time 2020 rolls around. Now, Mike Pence put out a very strong statement saying this was all absolute nonsense, to which the New York Times responded that they had a lot of sources that said that Vice President Pence's office was reaching out to donors saying that if the president simply decided that he'd had enough of the presidency by that time, whose side were they going to come down on? This is backed up by a fun little survey that was put out saying that if John Kasich ran against Donald Trump in a Republican primary in 2020, he would lead the president by 15 points in the state of New Hampshire. Now, we haven't done nationwide polling, but the fact that an incumbent president is behind a former primary rival is enormous. On November 30th, 1967, Senator Eugene McCarthy announced that he was going to run for the Democratic nomination for president against sitting Democratic President Lyndon Baines Johnson, largely over his policies related to the Vietnam War. McCarthy did not win the New Hampshire primary against LBJ. He did, however, come within eight points of him and prevented the president from winning a majority of the vote. 
It was after that that Lyndon Bain Johnson realized that he was in serious trouble, and he ended up not even running for the presidency the following year. If Kasich could pull off something similar, well, he would go down in history as a great patriot in my book. There's also some good news about North Korea. In a 15-0 vote in the Security Council, the United Nations has placed new and firm sanctions on the North Korean government, hopefully putting pressure on them to come to a peaceful solution to this little nuclear standoff we find ourselves in. That vote was shepherded by United Nations Ambassador from the United States, Nikki Haley, who, according to that New York Times report I talked about earlier, would apparently be Mike Pence's preferred running mate for president. Quite frankly, I'd prefer her to be at the top of the ticket, because, well, during the primaries, she was vocally anti-Trump, whereas Mike Pence was a gibbering little jellyfish. We'll see how that goes. That leads us to our way to look smart this week. This week, if you're having conversations with people, don't forget Russia. The Russian investigation is still lurking in the background. The president has been real crazy in public and has distracted lots of people from it. But this thing is still ongoing. Last week, we found out that the FBI, in a pre-dawn raid, looted Paul Manafort's house. Donald Trump's former campaign manager before Steve Bannon was brought on board with Kellyanne Conway carrying out boxes of evidence and computers. This is an amazing sign that the Mueller commission, that this investigation is starting to look very seriously at criminal charges because they are now gathering evidence. They also have grand juries impaneled. I would expect more news to leak out of this in the next week. There's going to be another big story, I think, about the FBI raiding people's houses and collecting evidence in service of this Russia investigation. When the president was asked about the raid, he said, quote, I thought it was a very, very strong signal, or whatever, unquote. Yeah, something else is going to leak out soon. Ah, uh, well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Special thanks to my producer, Jonathan, and to Acast. Remember Acast for all your podcasting needs. Acast, making good stories great. If you'd like to contact us, we are riepodcast at gmail, riepodcast on Twitter, and Republican in Exile on Facebook. If you have questions, comments, concerns, queries, send them to me. I'll respond to your racist nonsense by yelling at you. Loudly. With with curse words. I consider doing an all-curse word version of this episode where I just screamed F-bombs into the mic for 30 minutes. Um, it didn't go well. Hey, you like Star Trek The Next Generation? I will be on this week's episode of Hailing Frequencies, a Next Generation podcast. Listen to it. Hear me be happy for once. Uh, this triumphant music means that we are at the very end of the show. This week, ladies and gentlemen, do your very best not to die. <laughs> <laughs>